Let's uh, pray together. Today we're going to begin a new book of study uh, in our Bibles, so we're looking forward to that, but let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we do value one another, Lord. You've blessed us uh, with a family of believers to really enter into life with, with one another and to begin to invest into the lives of one another, to be encouraged by one another, Lord, every one of us with different gifts all designed for the working out of the body of Christ. And Lord, uh, in your infinite wisdom, you designed it to be such. And so, Lord, bless us as we pursue you and as we do so with brothers and sisters uh, alongside of us doing the same. Lord, we've come uh, this morning to gather uh, to hear from you, Lord, through your word, among other things today. And Lord, we know, we confess that it's easy for us to get distracted. But even as we sit here this morning, that other things can be on our heart and our minds. Valuable things, certainly, but enough to draw us away. And Lord, we do want to sit and we want to hear from you. And so, Lord, uh, we're praying that uh, you're, by your Holy Spirit, you would minister the truth of your word to our hearts. We pray to have hearts that would be receptive to hear, to apply. We pray your blessing on our kids in the Sunday school areas. We're thankful for them and pray, Lord, as they're discovering what it means to know you and walk with you. Lord, that you would uh, be growing them and challenging them as well, even as we seek to be growing and challenged here in this, uh, in this setting. So bless your word, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, new book of study, the book of Zechariah. Well, I got a cheer in the back um, from someone. So go ahead and start making your way there. What are those sheep up there? Is that what we got going on? Kyle, where are you? That They're sheep? Okay. All right. Um, fantastic. And there's one. Look at the guy in the middle. He's looking up. That's Zechariah. All right. He's got a word from the Lord for you and I. All right, so today we're going to be uh, digging into the book of Zechariah. We've been making our way through a number of different minor prophet books, uh, and Zechariah is one of those minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophet books. There's five so-called major prophet books, uh, but there's 12 minor prophet books. And as we've been moving through, Zechariah, we'll see, is the 11th of those 12 books. Now, many of the studies that we've done since sort of the summertime, since we went back into the Old Testament, many of those minor prophets are relatively short books, small in size books. That's why they're typically referred to as minor prophets, is because of the length of their prophecy. And so we looked at the book of Nahum. You may remember Nahum, three chapters. There's only a total of 47 verses in the book of Nahum. You can kind of make your way through that and understand that and maybe even memorize that. Some of us that are go-getters. Uh, that's the book of Nahum, Habakkuk, three chapters, a total of 56 verses, Zephaniah, three chapters, and a total of 53 verses. And then the book we have just completed, the book of Haggai, only two chapters and only a total of 38 verses in the entire book. So typically, many of the books we've been looking at are smaller in size. The book of Zechariah, as we're about to discover, is quite a bit larger. There's actually 14 chapters in the book of Zechariah. There's 211 total verses in the book, which makes it the longest of all of the minor prophet books that we have. Here's a fun fact. If you ever make it on the Jeopardy or something, this question may come up. 
and they're going to say which uh, minor prophet is actually larger than some of the major prophets, uh, and it is Zechariah. Zechariah's book is actually larger than the book of Daniel, which is considered one of the major prophets. So there you go. Tuck that away. A little bit of free uh, Jeopardy advice there for you. Book of Zechariah is quoted about 40 times in the New Testament. A lot of us, we love our New Testaments, like to read our New Testaments. You probably want to be familiar then with the book of Zechariah because it's quoted on 40 different occasions in the New Testament. I remember when I was in college, I had an English literature class, American literature actually is what it was, but most of the words were written in English, uh, and so that, that fits. But it was the American literature class. It's a tough crowd. I'm trying with the jokes here. Nothing's <laughs> happening. Um, and we, what one thing we noticed was in all these books we were reading, novels and things like that, there were always these references to things in the Bible. And the teacher, you know, a bunch of college kids, most of us didn't read the Bible, know much of the Bible. And so the teacher kept explaining and making reference to the Bible. And there was this kid in the class. I had a lot of classes with him. We were in the same major. And he hated uh, religion. He hated God. He hated the Bible. And finally, he, he lost it one day. He said, I'm sick of this. This is in class. I'm sick of this. Why do we always have to bring everything back to the Bible? He says to her, and I'm thinking, I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, and the teacher responded because these, and she very politely, these are all references in our books, and if you don't understand them, and that's why we go back to it. Well, similarly, that's what came to mind is if you are, if you're a fan of the New Testament, which I hope all of us are, and maybe a little less so the Old Testament, I don't get it, but perhaps a little bit less so, you're going to want to know the book of Zechariah because of how often it appears in the New Testament or is referenced in the New Testament. The book of Zechariah has been referred to as the most Messiah-centered book in the Minor Prophets or of the Minor Prophets or the most Christ-centered book of the Minor Prophets. And what I mean by that is it's repeated messages that are predicting various aspects of the coming Messiah whether that's referring to his first coming and the things he'll be doing during that first coming or referring to his second coming. Appears more times messages or references to that or teachings about that more times in the book of Zechariah than in any other of the minor prophets. Here are some of the notable prophecies concerning the Messiah that can be found in this 14-chapter book. Number one, the, the idea of him riding in humbly on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The fact that in his earthly life he would be betrayed by a friend and the amount of that betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, is found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 12. The fact that his death would cause his closest followers to flee and it compares that to uh, when a shepherd was struck and the sheep would flee, chapter 13, verse 7. The fact that in his second coming his feet would be firmly planted upon the Mount of Olives, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, chapter 14, verse 4. And the, uh, the fact of his millennial reign and that he would reign as both a high priest and as a king, which is something that the Jewish leaders were not allowed. It was one or the other, um, separation of powers in that regard, but that the Messiah himself would reign in both of those ways, chapter 14, verse 9, and a number of other references. And so it is a very Christ-centered book a messianic book in so many ways. Now, we just finished up the book of Haggai, the minor prophet book 
of Haggai. And you recall that that book was the first of the three post-exilic books, books that were written after the Jewish exile, after the Jewish captivity, particularly in the uh, empire of the Babylonians. Well, Haggai's the first, Zechariah is the second, the third is going to be the book of uh, Malachi. And so Zechariah, like Haggai, is a book that was written after the 70 years of captivity in the foreign land of Babylon. Like the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah was written to serve as an encouragement to its readers, who had grown a little bit discouraged by their seemingly their lack of progress in doing what God was calling them to do. You may recall in Haggai we learned that particular lesson. Zechariah, same message, a bit of encouragement to those that have grown a little bit discouraged. One thing we learn as we begin with the very first verse of the book is that Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries of one another, that they ministered at the very same time. Look at verse 1 of Zechariah. It begins this way. It says, Now in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Now if you, you can either flip back or you can look up at the screen. Look at the first verse of the previous book, the book of Haggai. That says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month. And so both of these two books occur during the same time period, the second year of this king, Darius. In the case of the book of Zechariah, it begins in the eighth month. In the case of the book of Haggai, it begins in the sixth month. You may remember in our study of the book of Haggai, it ends in the ninth month. So he has sort of this three-month window of time that he is ministering. Smack dab in the middle of that is the ministry of this fellow Zechariah. It seems as you study other passages in the scripture that Haggai, we don't even know, uh, but he had a very short three months. All right, Something because he was older or whatever, he kind of did what he had to do. Zechariah has a long window of ministry. And so also there's a reference in the book of um, Ezra, which speaks of him of being a young man, and so that he came on the scene as a young man and he stayed on the scene for many, many, many years. That either way, they, start, they started their ministries at the same time they were contemporaries of one another. The Lord raised up, this is about 15 years after the people came out of captivity, went back into the land, and the Lord raised up two prophets. And the purpose of those prophets would be to encourage the people it would be sort of to spark that passion. Remember the passion that brought them back to the land, that it had waned a bit. That's why they kept looking back and thinking, you know, are we really accomplishing anything? Why bother? And so to spark that passion and to reignite their devotion to the Lord and his work. That's the purposes of both Haggai and Zechariah. And as we dig into the book of Zechariah, you're almost immediately going to discover this interesting thing. That while they both had the same purpose, they both they, they had very different means of accomplishing that purpose, which I think is really interesting. And so Haggai, very straightforward. You, you see in his two chapters, he has four messages for the people. He gathers in front of the people and he delivers a sermon. Right? That's his style, so to speak. Our friend Zechariah, on the other hand, is very pictorial or pictorial. Much like, he's much like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, where there's a lot of imagery and there's a lot of symbols, and these things mean those particular, uh, this, 
uh, for the images that he brings. But they both have the same purpose, very different style as to how they're going to accomplish it. The book of Zechariah, a lot of us are familiar with the book of Daniel, very similar to the book of Daniel. Lots of visions, lots of images, lots of symbols. Now because of that, it becomes a very challenging book for us to, to break down. And so, you know, you can read a message, and as long as you know what the words mean, or you have a dictionary nearby, you can kind of put the pieces and you can figure it out. But the imagery and the symbolism sometimes complicates our study of a book like this. Uh, sometimes it's, it complicates our study of the book of Revelation. And so Zechariah has been referred to by a lot of, a lot of commentaries as uh, distracting, uh, as, uh, <laughs> as pretty complicated. Uh, it's a difficult book, but we'll do our best. We'll dig into it. Real quickly, two main parts to the book of Zechariah. There's 14 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6, a lot of these revelations, a lot of these visions, a lot of this imagery that I mentioned to you. Chapters 7 through 14, or the last eight chapters, is instruction based on those pictures and those visions that he received. And in that way, the latter half of the book is very, very similar to the book of Haggai. Sound good? You got it? All right, let's jump in. My wife's like, yes, let's move on. <laughs> All right. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. This goes out to Robin Downs. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, or Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Well, as I was saying, uh, a lot of imagery. Not yet, though. <laughs> a lot of Im imagery in the opening chapters, but the, the book actually begins with this message. This is the word of the Lord given to Zechariah that he delivered. We see there, it says in verse 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius the king, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Again, the timing is exactly the same, and it's in reference to a king named Darius. Now, Darius was not a Jewish king. He was actually the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And you remember that Medo-Persian Empire, they're the ones that defeated the Babylonians. So it was the Babylonians that came into uh, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. They overthrew it, and they took the people away captive. And for 70 years, they reigned over the Jewish people and held them as captives in a foreign land. Well, in 539 BC, as we've learned in some of our previous studies, they, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. That's one empire, the Medes and the Persians. And here now we have 
as one of the subsequent rulers of the Medes and the Persians, this fellow by the name of Darius. Now, since they took, overtook the Jewish people, they kind of, they got all of their captives as well. And the Medes and the Persians decided that they were going to uh, keep the Jewish people in subjection, but in a different way than the Babylonians did. So the Babylonians kept them in subjection in Babylon. They decided, you guys can go back to your land if that's what you desire, and you'll be our subjects there. And you can live, you know, where your great-grandfather lived and all that kind of stuff, and you'll send us money, and as long as you do what you're supposed to do, then everything will be cool. And so that's why the Jewish people had been able to return to Jerusalem, to Judah, but they still don't have a king of their own because they're subject to another people. Their king, if you will, is this man by the name of Darius. In our last study, we were introduced to the Jewish leader Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel wasn't a king of the Jewish people. He was the governor of Jerusalem. And so he was a Jew that had authority in Jerusalem, but he wasn't the king. The king was this foreign king, a man by the name of Darius. Verse 1 continues to go on, saying, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Now, if you're like me, that's one of those verses you tend to just, or portions of the verses you tend to just skim through. All right, give me the facts. The guy's name is Zechariah. Great. I don't really care who his dad is. I certainly don't care who his granddad is or whatever. And you kind of, you move quickly through it. You may not want to do that. Uh, because, one, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for your teaching, rebuking, your correcting, and training. And so the Lord may have something for you in that. In this case, I think he does. Because in that genealogy, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, we are given in those few words the, a summary of the entire message of the book. Now, Jewish names usually, typically, have much more meaning applied to them than English names. Most of us as Americans, we choose our kids' names based on the way it sounds. Oh, that sounds lovely. Or the way it sort of fits in with the rest of the family. You know, how do these names kind of fit in with one another? My, my name is Greg, with two Gs on the end. The reason why is because my oldest brother was Jeff, with two F's on the end, my middle brother was Scott with two T's on the end, and my parents looked for a third name that had a double consonant at the end, and that's how I got the name Greg. Not a lot of meaning in that, or not profound meaning in that, but it's worked well for me. Many of us in America, we choose baby names based on a book. We get a book and we read through all the names, and I like that sound, or this is the most popular one, or whatever it might be. The Jewish people, particularly in the Bible, they chose their names differently and perhaps with a greater purpose. The Jews, the Jewish people, they typically selected the names of their children as a means of communicating their hopes and desires for their children. Therefore, the meaning of the name meant a lot because this is what we hope and we desire for our kid. Although my, my theory was a little bit debunked with the name Esau, Esau, you may remember, means hairy uh, because he came out hairy. So there's not a lot of positive meaning and hopes and dreams in that particular name. But usually it was the hope and desire of the parents. And so what we know through our study of God's word is that even if God's people didn't have a plan for selecting the name of their children, other than that it like sounded like, nice like we do, we know that often the Lord had a name 
or had a, a, a purpose in the name that each person was given. And so we have Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. And I think that's one such example because the name Zechariah, it means the Lord remembers. The name Berechiah, his dad, it means the Lord will bless. And the name Edo, his granddad, it means at the appointed time. And so you put those three names together and what you have is the Lord remembers and the Lord will bless at his appointed time. And that's the message of the book of Zechariah. Because in the context, we learned this from our study of the book of Haggai, you have a people that were discouraged. You have a people that despite their best efforts, that their work didn't seem to measure up. That it was nowhere near the glory that this place they were working on, Jerusalem and the temple, once before experienced. And so here they were, they were a tiny group of people in a land that had sat desolate for seven decades, and they, were at, they found themselves at the mercy and the good graces of a foreign king. Not a whole lot to get excited about with that, and certainly not a lot of hope of where this is going to lead to. And Zechariah's message, as he comes to this people, is going to see, no, no, the Lord will remember the plans and the promises that he made to you, to your ancestors, Jewish people, and he will bless you at the appointed time. So don't give up. And all of that is just in the simple opening, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. The Lord remembers and he will bless at the appointed time. Now verse 2 goes on. It says, Now the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord. Again, I pointed out earlier how it begins with a bunch of visions, except it doesn't actually begin with a bunch of visions. It, it begins with just a straightforward message, a word from the Lord, as it says there uh, in verse 3. Now, again, going back to Haggai, so important to study these two books together. Going back to Haggai, we know that the people were looking back, those that were old enough to remember, those that were just little children when 70 years earlier they were taken out of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, that those folks now are 75, 80, 85 years old, and they're looking at this new temple that is being rebuilt, and they're discouraged by it. Remember, uh, Haggai asks them, which of you, you know, were alive when the other building stood? How do you see it now? And remember, when everyone gathered, the young people were like, this is fantastic, it's amazing, and cheering. And the old people were in the same crowd crying because they remembered what it looked like before and they were falling so incredibly short of what it was before. And so from that context and knowing that Zechariah is in the same, he's a contemporary there of Haggai, we know that there were people there that were looking back and they were lamenting the past greatness and glory of the temple. And through Zechariah, the Lord charges them in this, these two verses, he says, you need to learn the true lesson of looking back. The true lesson that they needed to learn of looking back was not to compare themselves with the glory of those times, but to look back and learn the lesson that those people had to learn, so to speak, the hard way. Sometimes we, we look back and we think of the good old days. What Zechariah is saying, you need to look back and see the bad old days. Because, as he says here, uh, those descendants that I called out to, 
those descendants that I sent prophets to, those descendants that I were trying to get to leave their sin and to walk with me, they wouldn't listen to me. And they suffered the consequences of it. And so if you want to look back and learn a lesson, learn this lesson. I'm calling to you now, make sure you listen to me, lest you suffer the consequences of it as well. If these Jews here in Zechariah's day wanted to glean something from the past, it is this. Look, if the Lord speaks, make sure you take heed and you listen to what it is he's saying. And so Zechariah, he begins, and he calls them to repent. Verse 3, the words that he uses are, return to me. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. Their fathers refused to. They refused to listen. They refused to repent. And the result, verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. The sin of their fathers, it doomed them to that whole nation, to that time of exile, to that time of captivity. And what Zechariah is now saying to his listeners is he begins with a warning to the people. To the people, Remember, the same thing could happen to you as well. And so that's how he begins his message. Now, please be reminded, again, this means more if you were with us for our study of Haggai, but if not, it's okay. Um, we learned in the book of Haggai that the people that went back to Jerusalem they were the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. Remember I used that kind of that phrase? The, the king, Darius here, he gave them, or it was even before Darius, but they gave them permission, you can go back to Jerusalem. We, we don't know about how many people there. Scholars estimate there were about a million Jewish people in captivity. 50,000 of those people went back to Jerusalem. Now in some cases, like Daniel, Daniel didn't go back. That doesn't make him a bad person. Daniel was also 85 years old. In some cases, people didn't go back because they were older or whatever it might be that prevented them from going back. But there were many, many, many people that chose not to go back because they had become comfortable in captivity. This is good enough. I'm content to live in a foreign land under the rule of a foreign king. That's fine. But there were 50,000, it was a little less than that, that said, you know what? If God's leading us there, I'm going. This is a mission, and I want to be on it. That's who Zechariah is speaking to. That's who Haggai was speaking to. And so these people here, they're not the worst people in society. They're not the bad sinners of society. They were the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. Again, they were those that saw an opportunity to be involved in a great work of God, and they took that opportunity to be involved with it. But yet remember, soon life got a little busy for them. And soon, those once-on-fire people for God, they began to wane in their fervor. They got distracted by other things, not bad things, just other things. And so the work of God sat dormant for years, 15 years, 14 years, I believe it is. And so Haggai calls to them, remember from the previous book, get back to work. Stop saying it's time to fix your house up instead of fixing up the house of the Lord resume the work that you had started with you know gusto before get back to doing that again that was Haggai's message and we learned in the book of Haggai how did the people respond class they did it that's what they did he called to them it's in uh I think it's in verse 14 of Haggai chapter 1 so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel 
the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. That's great, right? All right, so look, come on, guys. Let's get it going here. Let's get back on it. We can do this. And they did it. So that's fantastic. So that which Haggai confronted them about doing, that they needed to be doing, they did. Yet here is Zechariah challenging them to return to the Lord and to repent. And so those two messages here, they seem like they contradict one another. And it's not one of these situations, well, Zechariah, you know, he was right there alongside of Haggai calling him. The, the timing of it is Haggai called him, they responded, Zechariah comes in and rebukes them. And so it doesn't seem like it jives. It doesn't seem like it reconciles. And the reason why, or the, the way in which we can reconcile these impar- apparent contradictions is by realizing this, that the people were physically doing what they needed to be doing, but there was something that was askew in the attitude of their heart. So that even as they did the work of God, there was an aspect of their heart that was still far from God. And that's what Zechariah is going to address. And so he has this word of encouragement to them. And as part of that word of encouragement, Zechariah has to tell them to repent because he is aware that they were not fully sincere in their desire to serve God, even as they did serve God. I think that's an incredibly important message because we can go through the motions of serving the Lord, can't we? And yet our heart is in a place that it shouldn't be. And we could perhaps be grumbling through the whole process or I got to do this thing again in these stupid poopy diapers and I'm the guy in here doing it again. You know, all these kinds of things. It's an important lesson for us because it's possible to be doing things for God and still be far enough away from God that he has to say to us, return to me. Serving in Sunday school, yet drifting away. Passing out warm cups of coffee or blankets to people, and yet be distant. Preaching a Sunday morning sermon, and yet still the Lord needing to say, you need to return to me. Now, if all we had was the book of Haggai to go by, you could draw the conclusion that all God's really interested in is getting that temple built. All God's really interested in is getting people in there teaching Sunday school. All he's really interested in is people out on the streets passing out cups of coffee. As long as the people were working on doing those particular things, God was content. What Zechariah reveals to us is that what God is primarily interested in in the lives of his people is the condition of their heart, not the work that they do. The work's important. The work has to get done. But what's primarily important is the condition of people's hearts. And that's what Zechariah is going to address. I said this is the most messianic book in the Old Testament, or in the book, in the Minor Prophets. And a lot of references here to the second coming of Christ and the glorious reign of the Messiah over all the earth. And so what Zechariah is going to do is he's going to unfold a whole bunch of rich promises that God has made to the Jewish people. A lot of comforting words. You may think you're just some down and out people at the mercy of some foreign king. You're not. You're children of God, and the Messiah is going to come, and from here he's going to rule and reign over the entire earth. These are rich promises. These were meant to be comforting promises. But what Zechariah knows is this. If those riches 
are ever to be enjoyed by these people that they're going to need to have repented of their sin and that they are going to have to bring themselves to a place where their heart is prepared to receive that which the Lord has for him. And so he has to begin then, before I get into all the promises, Zechariah says, I have to begin with where you need to begin, listener, not you, them. You need to begin by returning to the Lord. So he says that, verse 3, return to me, he says, and I will return to you. And that's ever the way it is with the Lord. The Lord's never going to force you to return. He's never going to force you to repent. He may bring circumstances into your life so that you realize, what am I doing? But he'll never force you to do it. He invites them to return to him. Those words, return to me and I will return to you, so reminiscent of James chapter 4, verse 8, that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a story that's told of an older couple. And this older couple, they no longer sit close to one another in the car as they once did. They had one of those old cars, some of you may remember, some of you older couples, uh, may remember with the front bench seat, kind of like a truck, you know, the front bench seat. And so when they were younger, she used to sit, he would drive, she would sit right in the middle, nestled right up next to her. They loved each other so much, whatever. But as time went on, she sort of began to drift to the right and now sort of uh, touching the side door instead of touching her love like she used to. And one day as they were driving, she took notice that a lot of young couples still sat, they were sitting up next to one another. And so she said to her husband, how come we don't sit nestled up against one another like we used to? And the man sitting there holding the wheel, he said, well, all I can say is this, I'm not the one that moved because he's still sitting the same place he was 50 years ago. I'm not the one that drifted off to the side there. And so I say this to you. If God seems far away from you, he's not the one that moved. You're the one that moved. You're the one that drifted a little bit to the side. There's a wonderful promise here in these verses. This is, if, if you like pick a verse to memorize, you know, maybe in a week or just meditate on during a week, it, this would be a good one. Return to me and I will return to you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you, he says. Verse 4 goes on, he says, Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear, and they did not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Look at the words that the prophets spoke to those Jewish ancestors. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Then compare that with the words that Zechariah just said to these people, return to me. It's the same message. The same instructions that God was now giving these people are the instructions that he gave the previous generation. And sadly, the previous generation refused to hear, they refused to pay attention, and they suffered the consequences for doing so. And so the unspoken message then of Zechariah is this, that his listeners should take heed lest they suffer the same consequences themselves by not paying attention to the Lord's call. Zechariah says, he goes on, he says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? 
Where now were those who had refused to obey the word of the Lord? Where even were the prophets that God sent them to speak his word to them that they ignored? All of them were gone. The people that wouldn't listen were gone. The prophets that were, go- were gone. But what remained is God's holy word. He says that there in verse 6. He says, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? God's words, God's statutes, they remained and did exactly what the Lord said they were going to do, overtake his people. And so that which God said would happen if the people failed to repent is exactly what did happen because the people failed to repent. Again, the unspoken message that Zechariah has for his listeners is listen to God and respond accordingly. And again, if all we had was the book of Haggai to go on, we might conclude that what God was most interested in was the building of his temple. But here we're reminded that most of all, God is interested in his people. God's interested in you and I. God's interested in the condition of each one of our hearts before him. And so even though the folks were rebuilding the temple, and even though the city of Jerusalem uh, was being reconstructed, and even though the people were doing all kinds of other good deeds, what God desired most from them was that they be right with him in the deep places of their heart. You remember from our pre-exile studies, books of Nahum, Habakkuk, some of those other ones that we did this summer, we remember that while the people were worshiping and serving all of their gods, and they were going to the foreign gods and doing that, before they went to those places, they were going to the temple and having worship. So they would leave this church, for instance, and they would go to some idol's temple, and they would worship there as well. They were still doing what they were required to be doing, their sacrifices and offerings at the temple, and yet their hearts were very, very far from the Lord. And the same context here is, you're you're building this temple, great. You're rebuilding Jerusalem, great. You come here regularly, you have the sacrifices here on the altar. Even though the temple's not done yet, the altar is. And you're doing that, great. Yet your heart is far from me. And so you need to return. Good works are important. A right heart is of paramount importance. Now before moving on, we're not going to get to the visions today. They'll start uh, in verse 8. I think there's a couple of valuable truths that we can take from these opening six verses. Number one is this. God said he would judge their sin if they didn't repent, referring to the ancestors, and God judged their sin because they didn't repent. So the first lesson we can learn is this. God does indeed judge sin. The scripture calls sin, sin, and it says that there is a consequence for that sin. It's easy for us to draw the conclusion, well, nothing happened to me. I said a dirty word. No lightning came out of heaven and struck me down. And we can think God doesn't really judge sin. I know the Bible says that. The Bible makes it very clear. God does indeed judge sin. If there's anything that past history should have taught those returning exiles, and thus you and I, it's that God judges sin. And although in his patience, judgment is often delayed, the time does come when he will require that those that sin give an accounting for that sin. The fathers, these fathers of these people, these ancestors, they had come to learn that that was the case. And when Zechariah is speaking to them by saying, look back at your fathers, where are they now? 
is to spare his listeners from having to learn the same lesson they learned experientially. See, I don't want to put my hand on the the stove and learn that it's hot. I want to learn that lesson because somebody else did it. Not that I need to do it to see if it's true as well. And that's the first thing. God does indeed judge sin. The second lesson that we can glean is that those past judgments of others are meant to serve as a warning to you and I to turn from our sin. Again, none of us need to learn the the hard way that the stove is hot. None of us need to suffer the same consequences of those that had come before us. Zechariah's listeners, they were fully aware of what had overtaken their forefathers when they refused to heed the word. The facts of that earlier destruction, they were never, though, meant to merely be facts. Let's learn the history of Israel. They were never just meant to be facts that we recite and we put down on a test. They were meant to serve as examples. Examples that would bring about a wholehearted repentance and obedience to those that were observing them. So that's the second thing. Sometimes we read our Bibles to learn what to do. Other times we read our Bibles to learn what not to do. That we look at the consequences of someone else's decision and we let that serve as a warning in our own lives so that we won't have to suffer that consequence as well. That's the second point that we get from these verses. The third lesson in this opening paragraph is that obedience brings blessing. Sin brings judgment. Obedience brings blessing. Again, we're reminded of the words that were written to Haggai. Second chapter of his book, he said, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed on stone in the temple, before you guys got back here and started rebuilding this temple, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50, there were but 20, he says then, skipping down to verse 19. But from this day onward, he says, I will bless you. And so again, the message then is this. If people return to him, God will return to them, to his people, and that he will bless them. That's the third message. And then the fourth one is this, and that is that the word of God is inescapable. The word of God is true, and the word of God is eternal. And nobody can escape the word of God. One, you can't pretend that it doesn't exist or ignore it. You can't doubt it and refuse to pay heed. You can't twist it to get it to say something that you want it to say. The word of God is the word of God, and it's eternal, and it is true. And it always proves itself to be true. The prophet Isaiah, he said this, another Bible verse you can memorize this week. It's, he said, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And in the verse before that, he likens humanity to the grass, the, the blade of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, every one of us, we come, we go. The great powers that be and those that seek to influence society in one way or another with their great thinking All of them come and all of them go, but what remains forever is God's holy word. And the truth of God's holy word isn't interested in what the culture thinks and says, and this is what we've all voted, this is what we believe is true now, and everything else is a lie. The word of God just continues on. Now, that's not true. This is true. 
The word of God is true. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Through Zechariah, the Lord asked, where are your fathers? Where are the prophets that spoke to your fathers? The implication, they're all gone. He says, but my word has and my word always will remain. My words and my statutes, he said, they will live forever. And so this is Zechariah's opening message to this people. Their response, look at verse 6, the second half. So they repented. Praise the Lord. So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So they repented. The people heard God's call for them to return to him, and the people heeded that call to return to him. And that is all that God asks of us. When I speak into your life and I minister a truth into you and I challenge you about an area, all that God asks of us is that we respond to what it is he is saying to us. And the people did that, and so praise the Lord. And so I'll pose this question to you and I. Has the Lord been speaking to your heart about something? Probably before you got here. This last week, this last month, the Lord's been challenging you about a particular thing that is going on in your life. Something you're doing, a way that you're thinking, how you're responding to something. Remember in Haggai, consider, the, consider your ways. What's the path that you are on? Is that really where you want to go? And God, by his Holy Spirit, he ministers to us. He speaks to us. He challenges us. He lays something on us. We find ourselves continually thinking about that thing and maybe a little bit kind of uncomfortable with it, recognizing that, you know what, some change needs to happen. And that's how God ministers to us. And so if the Lord has been speaking to your heart about an area, have you dealt with it? Are you ready to deal with it? That's all that he asks of us. Yes, Lord. Yes. I'll do what you're telling me to do. And you take that initial step. And you take it again tomorrow as he speaks to you again, and then the next day, and the next day. Is there an area maybe where you've drifted a bit? Today is the day to deal with it. It's always this day. Tomorrow morning when you're having your quiet time, tomorrow morning is the day to deal with it. And the next day, that's the day to deal with it. It's always today. Today is the day to determine that you're going to respond to what the Lord has been ministering to your heart about. Amen? You with me? All right, let's pray. Let's just take a minute just to be quiet so that each one of us can pray silently about what the Lord might be ministering. Good, you're so gracious and you're so kind. And even when you challenge us in a way that makes us uncomfortable, you desire good things for every one of us. And the best thing for each one of us is that we be transformed more into the image of your son. And so, Lord, as you've been, no doubt, this last week or month or maybe years, challenging each one of us in this room about an area. A lot of times, a lot of us, we've gotten good at just sort of uh, 
shutting out your voice, rationalizing it away. And yet you keep coming back and you keep speaking about that area. And Lord, we know that it's you. And today, Lord, as we see this lesson in the book of Zechariah, we don't want to be fools that are convinced that it's you and then ignore you anyway. Lord, we want to learn the lesson of those that have come before us. We want to be people that respond to your leading. And so you're calling us to return. You're calling us to draw near. And in a fresh way in our hearts here this morning, we want to do that. And so, Lord, I pray your blessing on every one of us in this room that is ready to do that. Draw near to us, Lord, even as we draw near to you. Amen.